Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. I am Rob Green. I'm one of the other elders here at Covenant, and we get to uh, continue our series this morning, Summering in the Psalms. Uh, so if you join me in prayer before we start. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everybody here. Um, thank you for summer. Thank you for summer in the Psalms. I just ask that you bless this message, that you let the words be yours, um, that they ring true, that they do your work, uh, and they land well. Uh, be with us all. Uh, let us be peaceful and enjoy. Uh, and in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So I have to be honest, as somebody that does this on occasion, I normally have like a burning message, right, that's built up. Before I became an elder, I had like seven or eight sermons pre-planned in my head that I had been rolling over year and year, and like, I can't wait to share this with people. And we sat down, we were like, yeah, somewhere in the Psalms, that's great. July 10th, awesome. And then, you know, ended that conversation. I walked away and I was like, shoot. I got nothing. Um, this is over. So I dove in, like many of you would. I signed up for, you know, one, two, maybe 20 devotionals in the Psalms, right? Lots of emails. Started flipping through this. Um, Google became my best friend. What's the best Psalm, Google? What's the worst Psalm? What's the most popular Psalm, the least popular Psalm? Anything you can think of. I was searching and Googling. Um, I started flipping through my Bible. There's a lot of Psalms, if you didn't know. It takes a little while. I started picking out some topics I like. I was like, maybe that'll match with this song. Nah, that didn't work. And finally, I was like, okay, I don't got this. I was like, God, tell me something, please. <laughs> Give me something. Give me anything. Um, and so, as it so often does, a psalm sort of showed up. Uh, it's not really long, right? It's not long at all. It's likely not one you would all recognize if I told you the chapter or some of the verses. Um, it's only nine verses. It's short. It's concise, and I remember the first time I read through it, I was like, okay, okay, this is good, this is good. Down there, nine verses, right? Seven, eight, ninth verse, and in one fell swoop, my face looked like this. <laughs> if you can't place that emotion, that is my daughter Gemma, and that is her, as we would call it, our what the heck face, okay? Because I could not believe what I had just read. I was like, was that really, like, folks, I've been a Christian for 30 years. And I was like, I missed something. I, um, I've, I've read my Bible. I was like, what is happening on? So, of course, I was like, I'm preaching on this. So I told my wife, and my wife looked at me and she just said, are you sure? <laughs> really? That's what you're going to do this? Okay. Um, and I dug into it. And I actually found out that this psalm that I thought is not known and sort of obscure and nobody would recognize has actually been insanely popular for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it's been in Jewish liturgies. It's been used in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's been in Protestant churches. Uh, if you're a classical music lover, you can think Bach, De Monte, Guerrero, Bird, Dvorak, Verdi, Bloch, Alkin have all written pieces inspired by this. Dozens of poems have been written using the words of this psalm. 
Dozens of paintings represent it. Uh, in fact, depending on what age or generation you're of, you've actually heard contemporary songs that quote this, uh, quote this psalm by the likes of the Melodians, Boney M, Don McLean, uh, if you're my generation, Sublime. <laughs> Same. Uh, it's been played in two extremely popular TV shows in the last 30 years, so if you're a big fan of West Wing or Mad Men, you've heard this psalm and may not even have known it. Uh, it was even quoted by Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, in his famous What's the Fourth of July to a Slave speech. Uh, it's been an anthem time and time again for the oppressed and the exiled and the downtrodden. Um, and much to its fame, a pope once removed its verses from the liturgy, telling us that they were not compatible with the gospel message. Right? Um, I even found it labeled online as a, in a list of a verse or a verses that turns Christians to atheists. So this is a pretty versatile psalm here, right? <laughs> We're a little all over. Um, so, but let me introduce you to this wonderful psalm uh, of the morning, Psalm 137. Uh, you can read along as we go. Alongside Babylon's rivers, we sat on the banks. We cried and cried, remembering the good old days in Zion. Alongside the quaking aspens, we stacked our unplayed harps. That's where our captors demanded songs, sarcastic and mocking, sing us a happy Zion song. Oh, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, let my fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black. If I fail to remember you, exactly. <laughs> exactly. If I fail, oh dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. God, remember those Edomites and remember the ruin of Jerusalem. That day they yelled out, wreck it, smash it to bits. And you Babylonians, ravagers, a reward to whoever gets back at you for all you've done to us. Yes, a reward to the one who grabs your babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. <laughs> That's exactly what my wife looked like when I told her I was preaching. So in case you missed that last verse, yes, a reward to the one who grabs your babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. Okay? I'm looking, you're almost all there. All right. So the question becomes, what on earth do we do with this? Right? Like, this isn't the only hard verse in the Bible, to be fair. But what do we do with this? So we got some options. Right? We can first, we can just stick our heads in the sand. We can ignore it. Right? God's good. I believe it. This is going to work out. Next psalm. Right? Here we go. Uh, we can do that. Uh, but this is going to fester. Right? This is one of those things that... Every once in a while, you're going to wake up at 2 a.m. screaming, smash the babies against rocks, right? So it's going to fester. It's going to breed just fear and doubt and insecurity. So maybe not good. Um, we could call it a mistake, right? Like, so maybe there was a bad transcription. God didn't mean it. wasn't intended. Someone accidentally wrote that down. Uh, maybe not either, right? So because if I don't like this, right? There's a few other verses I can cut out of the Bible along the way, too, right? So I can just sort of go back, and it's a pretty low view of Scripture. So here at Covenant, we hold a really high view of Scripture, right? That it's inspired, that it's inerrant, that it's timeless. So we can't really do that. So our only option left, really, at this point, is just to sit down and do the hard work, right? We have to do the hard work. Because as Timothy tells us, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to sit down 
do the hard work with you all to get through this verse, um, pull some lessons out along the way, uh, and hopefully do some good things, right? Because we got to go through this process. I'm a big fan and believing that the process matters, right? The process matters just as much as the outcomes. And the thing that I want us to really walk away with this morning is doing the hard work of understanding hard scriptures is transformational. So I hope you get a sense for that this morning. And, well, let's go, right? Let's dig in. Here we go. Um, So I'm going to try to follow three principles while I do this. Uh, I'm going to list these out for you right here. I'm going to say them once. I'm not coming back. There will be no exam, no quizzes, not going to ask. But put them in your back pocket for the day when you run across another scripture that you are like, yeah, what the heck, right? Um, So three principles. First, scripture always interprets scripture. So if we're reading scripture, the first place we look for clarity is other scriptures, The second one is much like it. The clear interprets the cloudy. Some scripture is difficult, right? It's not clear. It's complex. It doesn't speak directly to us in our context. So we need to look for other things, particularly other scriptures that are clear that will clarify the cloudiness, right? Remove that doubt. And the third principle that I'm going to lean on heavily is that context is king. So we're going to do a lot of context this morning, because really to understand something like this, particularly a psalm that is musical, that is lyrical, that is meant to be sung, that is full of emotion, we really have to understand the context, right? The who, what, where, when, and why of how this was written. Because we got to step into the author's shoes, right? We have to to be there with them. We have to, to wade into the deep waters with them and feel what they felt, see what they saw. So that's where we want to start, with context. Right? Simple question is first, who wrote this thing? Most people believe Jeremiah. Okay? Jeremiah, book of the Bible, hopefully you've read it. He's known as the weeping prophet. Uh, he would have wrote this psalm during the Babylonian exile. There's a little disagreement, but generally we're all good. But the big context line here is that you had an unpopular guy writing this psalm during a really lousy time in Israel's history. Okay, so you had this unpopular prophet. If you're not aware, all the prophets, for the most part, are unpopular. Most of them end up getting killed. Um, so this is a really big thing. Now, I've dropped this word exile here a few times, so I want to put that in context as well. We're talking about the Babylonian exile, but when you think exile, you should think like Jews in exile in Germany, African slaves in exile in the U.S. Okay, so this is really not a pretty picture. It's devastating, it's culture-shaping, it rips families apart, it destroys individuals, there's intense consequences. So exile. Next one is exile in Babylon. So if you ever heard, you should have heard the word Babylon, but this is the place in the name in all of Scripture that is realistically and figuratively used to be the worst, right? The worst of the worst, the epitome of evil, the baddest of the bad. Okay? So everything that is terrible is Babylon. So you find yourself with the author here around 550, 600 BC. You've been ripped out of your home in Jerusalem. You've been marched 300 miles around desert. Okay? So you can imagine a 300-mile march around desert is going to be a terrible, terrible experience. And really, this exile happened three times in three stages. Right? The first time Babylon came in, Babylon, big empire, and they just sort of took over Jerusalem. It was political, it was rather bloodless, it wasn't, right? it wasn't violent. But they still, they took the king, they took the military, they took the politicians, they took people, 
tens of thousands of people, ripped them out of their home, marched them 10,000 miles back to Babylon, and probably stuck them in ghettos and said, you're doing our thing. So you can imagine in exile, people are not happy. The second time this happened was a king named Zedekiah. He was one of Israel's kings, right, of the Jews. He led a rebellion. The Babylonians said no. And this time they came back, and it was not bloodless. It was bloody. In fact, they destroyed the entire city, raised the temple to the ground, bad things. Again, carried off men, women, children, military, everybody, 300 miles back to Babylon. The third time, it happened again, but it was more of a running away. Um, This is the time Jeremiah would have been. Um, instead of the weeping prophet, we probably could have called him the fleeing prophet. They ran away for safety, ran to Egypt, ran out of Babylon, ran out of Jerusalem and Judea. And this is where we find ourselves. Okay? Um, to be clear, these like five or six bullet points over the last two minutes cover the following books of the Old Testament. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So that's 11 of 37 books summed up in nine verses of a psalm. (laughs) So there's a lot going on here. This is a really, really important time. And not only is it important, but the words you heard me say, exodus and exile, right? It can arguably, the argument can be made that these are the defining things of Jewish history and culture, right? Like they are the defining moments of all of Old Testament history. The Jews were exiled from the garden to the sinful world. They were exiled to Egypt, exiled to Babylon. Or they were going through Exodus, right? They had an exodus out of Egypt. They had the exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. As one author writes, the experience of the exile forced the Israelites to rethink their relationship to Yahweh, revise their understanding of the covenant, reassess their standing as a chosen people, and rewrite their history. The exile served as the crucible that transformed the followers of Yahweh from an innocent people who took their chosenness for granted to a nation that, is, that its continued existence was highly contingent. Okay? So these were important times. And if you want a, a little extra context for that, during this period, uh, scholars believe this is roughly when half of the Old Testament was actually written down and gathered together during this exile period. And if you still don't believe me, They've done the study. 70% of the Old Testament refers to exile, right? 70% of Jewish scriptures refer to exile. All that to say, exile, and particularly the Babylonian exile, right, among the exiles, is one of the really big deals in Jewish history. And so this is where we find ourselves, right? At the first part of this psalm, um, which we'll read again here, which I would refer to as the trauma of exile. Alongside Babylon's rivers, we sat on banks. We cried and cried, remembering the good old days in Zion. Alongside the quaking aspens, we stacked our unplayed harps. That's where our captors demanded songs, sarcastic and mocking. Sing us a happy Zion song. So just imagine, right? Put yourself back in this. You're in a new place. You've been forced there, ripped out of your home, ripped out of your country, your culture, your church, your friends. The language that's spoken there is different. It is not your language. The culture is different. You don't get to find a job. You're given a job, and it's a hard job. Building temples, building bricks, farming the desert. If that didn't land, let me just say it again. Farming the desert. (laughs) Okay? 
I mean, these were hard times for everybody, right? Much harder times we have now, but they were terrible. And as a Jewish nation, you look back and you're like, we're slaves in Egypt again. That's where we are, right? We've been exiled again. Your words and names that you use are changed. If you remember, this is the time of Daniel, right? Daniel's name in Babylon was not Daniel. It was Belteshazzar, right? They changed their names. They changed their culture. So the musician, the writer of the psalm says, I'm out. Lay down the harp. Stop playing the keys. And the captors, right, the Babylonians are like, "Uh, no, entertain me. I brought you here. Like, sing your songs. We want to hear this. And this is not new, folks, right? So this happens all the time. Slave owners did it in the U.S., right? This is where we get tons of spirituals. The Nazis did it to Jews in the ghettos in the Holocaust. Um, And it's a common thing. Take over people, bring them home, make them entertain you, okay? So the Jews are here, a minority, oppressed, abused, downplayed, downtrodden. They lived in ghettos. They're doing this whole exile thing. But you're there for a while, So eventually, you take on some Babylonian things. They take on some Jewish things. You start to come together a little bit. In fact, Jeremiah says to those in exile, directly to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Marry wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters and you may increase there and not dwindle away. Seek the welfare of any city to which I have carried you off and pray to the Lord for it. On its welfare, your welfare will depend. So in this trauma of exile, I think we find our first lesson of the psalm, which is despite the trauma of exile, always seek the good of the city of exile. I mean, you've heard it before. Christians as exiles, right? Countercultural, not quite fitting in all the time. I don't know about you. I live here in Bowling Green. I want BG to rock. I want Toledo to thrive. I want our schools to be amazing. I want the university to be great, downtown to be amazing. I want the good of the city. I want us all to thrive here. And that's what God wants too. He wants us to seek the good of the city of exile. So we find ourselves here with the Jews awaiting deliverance, waiting in exile, seeking the good of the city. And in the second part of the psalm, they make a promise to remember. Oh, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, let my fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black if I fail to remember you. If I fail, oh dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. This is a call to never forget Jerusalem, the greatest, the identity of the Jews as the people of God as the chosen people of God. This is a promise to remember Yahweh, who he is, and who they are before him. And I really want you to note here that this is not I, this is we. This is a communal, a national promise to say we need to remember. And it's extreme. I mean, look at this, right? Fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black. If you're not a musician, Maybe you don't get it, but you can put it in your own context. You can ask anyone on stage here, right? If Greg lost the ability to speak tomorrow, I think his life would be devastated. My wife's an excellent singer. She has a beautiful voice. She went through some trauma with her voice. She couldn't sing. I remember how terrible it was for her. This thing she loves to sing, to worship, right? To harmonize, right? To communicate. Taken away. It's devastating. 
So the musician here is saying, take the most important thing in my life and take it away if I fail to remember. Right? There are extreme consequences. The craziest thing is, if you look at some of the old Jewish writings and the history here, particularly the Midrash, um, one author writes, one tradition held that the exiles foreclosed the possibility of playing for their captors by actually mutilating their thumbs and their teeth, actually gnawing their own flesh to make it impossible to play any instrument. Right? Like, literally. Okay? Um, in a way, then, these musicians of the Midrash carried out on their own digits the oath given in verse 5. So literally, we find in exile, this promise was so serious that there were Jews that actually did this. And they didn't do it by slamming their hand in the door. They did it by chewing off their own thumbs. Right? That's intense. I mean, this is crazy. But here's the reality. They knew what they were doing. They knew what was important. They knew that they had to remember. They had to remember who they were, who God was, right? And never forget. I love it. There's another Jewish tradition, which I think is awesome. It goes like this. Leave holes in the plaster when you're finishing a house. Just a little one. Leave some small thing out of dinner. Just a little thing. When you're planning a wedding and you go out to celebrate and party, make sure you forget to plan just one little thing. Why? So that you remember there's something to remember. There's always something missing. Remember that there's something to remember, right? And we can take this as lesson number two, around purposeful remembering, right? Remembering by will, not by occasion, not by happenstance, because purposeful remembering forces us to remember our purpose. You know, for us, the reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we should always find ways to work that out in our daily lives, right? To remember who we are, who we are before God. If we're going to put ourselves in these shoes, we can draw a lesson here and say, you know, we need to remember. Um, one of the best examples I have of this, uh, an old pastor I had in high school did this thing where he said, hey, this is what I want you to all do. Put a little green dot on your watch. Handed out stickers at the end of the service put it on there. And they said, every time you check the time, because we know we all look at our watches too much, right? Today, I'd say, put a green dot in the middle of your phone, right? Um, every time, just pray. Just quick, one second, two seconds, doesn't matter. But it's an exercise, that one little thing to remember who you are, to pray, to stop, to acknowledge God in your day, to put you in your rightful place, put him in his rightful place, remembering why you are doing what you're doing. And it's a great tool because... I mean, you know this, you go into somebody's house, there's a little tiny hole in the plaster somewhere, you didn't see it, but they know it's there. I mean, a green dot on your watch, right, as, as Nate Bargetsy would say, it means nothing to nobody, okay? But it's meaningful, it's purposeful remembering, it's a practice we can work into our daily lives, right? So purposeful remembering. And that's where we head back into the psalm, to the third part where the hard work actually has to be done because it has this really challenging verse, right? So we find that some of these musicians, instead of laying down their harps, decided to pick them up. So I want you to imagine this. Jews in exile, musicians with their musical instruments, all these kind of things, the Babylonians say, entertain us, entertain us. And you don't want to do this, right? I mean, like realistically, you hate these people right? They entertain us. So they say, all right, we got you. They get it together, this thing, and they start playing this melody, and they start singing, 
and probably they're singing in Hebrew, and I'm guessing most of the Babylonians had no idea what they were saying. You want to know what they were singing? They were singing to them, God, remember those Edomites and remember the ruin of Jerusalem. That day they yelled out, wreck it, smash it to bits. And you Babylonians, you ravagers, a reward to whoever gets back at you for all you've done to us. Yes, a reward to the one who grabs your babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. Christopher Hayes tells us regarding this portion, the captors, the Babylonians, have asked for a song, and they get it in a language they don't understand. The Jews show their defiance to their captor not by refusing to sing, but by what they sing. They fill a recognizable form with an unexpected content. They wanted to lay aside their harps, but now they're compelled to sing. So they take comfort in this song of national pride. In the temple, the Lord's song comes out as praise, but in exile, everything is inverted and it comes out as anger. The Babylonians appear blissfully unaware that they are being cursed. And if you read up on these psalms, you'll find this is one of the imprecatory, the cursing psalms, right, as they are called. But these psalms and songs like them, they're the spirituals of slaves in the South. They were the songs of the oppressed during apartheid. They're the music that we still have recorded of the Jewish ghetto swingers that were forced to play music while their brothers and sisters were tattooed and murdered. They're songs of sadness, of trauma, of remembrance, but above all, they are angry songs calling for outrageous justice. Angry songs that call for outrageous justice. And this one particular, we read through the Psalms, this doesn't sit well on our modern ears, right? The way it's said. So I could go down this path, right? We could justify this, okay? I could stand up here, I could build an argument about the harshness of the ancient world, about how conquerors did this to men, women, and children. I could make this argument about how in the ancient world they would leave unwanted babies out in the woods to die or be eaten. I could talk about the cruelness of the world or how the Babylonians probably did this to the Jews along the way, even though, just so you know, there's an outstanding question of whether something like this ever happened, right? Like this level of violence. I could make the argument from Matthew 7, right? For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to use. John Calvin makes this argument about this verse. I could point you to Isaiah 13, where there's a prophecy about the Babylonian exile that says their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses looted, and their wives violated. I could make this argument. We could go down this path, and we could say, isn't the psalmist justified in calling for this equal retributive justice that's prophesied in other scripture? But before that, let's take a beat, okay? I want you all to imagine three scenarios with me that you've all probably done or lived through, okay? First one, you're with friends, family, whoever, driving down the highway in the car, and some crazy person comes flying up going 90, 100 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, right? You see a car swerve, you know, whatever. I know exactly what you just muttered under your breath. I hope he wrecks, kills himself, right? I've done that. Maybe kills himself before he kills somebody else, right? It's dangerous, right? You're mad, like justice must be done. Second scenario, right? So I lived through 9-11 as many of you did, and I remember after the fact, there's a really popular song we still hear on occasion today by Toby Keith, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. 
Anybody else remember mouthing those words or seeing people proudly sing along to that song as they talked about leveling entire countries, destroying cultural groups, ripping apart families, and shredding an entire part of the world we've never been to? Or how about a third one? I bet no one in here has ever been mad at a politician. Wished ill upon them or their family or friends. Right? But look at this. In all those cases, you'd be like, yeah, I get it. Like, maybe it wasn't serious. Like, maybe it was. Maybe it was justified. Maybe it wasn't. But you'd be like, that's, like, that's intensely real. That's intensely human. Right? You're calling for outrageous justice because you've been wronged. Right? Like, that's a thing. It is an outrageous call for justice. So I want you to hear this, folks. We, you and I, we sing this psalm all the time. We sing it all the time. But it's not about justifying it. It is not about justifying the rage, the anger, the, out, the outcry for justice. It's about talking about where it is placed. All right, I want us to be really careful here because if you look at this psalm in this third part at the beginning, it does not say I. It does not say we. It starts and directly says God. God, hear me. God, remember the Edomites. God, do this. God, bless them. It's directed 100% directly to and in front of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God that already sees it coming. Ellen Davis writes about these verses that you may, not, you may have not heard these words in church. Sunday lectionaries omit psalms like this altogether, or they include them in highly expurgated form. But by clapping our hand over the psalmist's mouth in that way, we lose something the Bible intends us to have. By refusing to listen to that anger and even take it on our own lips, we lose an opportunity to bring our anger into the context of our relationship with God. Okay, so real quickly, let's revisit those first three scenarios. The next time you're not road raging, but upset, this is what I want you to do. Instead of, I hope he wrecks, pull over the car, tell everybody in there, hey, we're going to pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that the driver of that car wrecks and kills themselves. <laughs> the next time a 9-11 happens, please, Lord Jesus, we pray that you use the U.S. to wipe them off the face of the earth forever. The next time you're upset at a politician, Jesus, please strike down their family and friends. Why? Because putting that outrageous call for justice, that anger in front of God does something. Placing your rage in front of God does something. What's it do? You felt it. It makes it fail. It falters. It falls short. The Spirit instantly intervenes, convicting every thought you have about this. And you hear Christ say in Matthew, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You hear echoes of let him with no sin throw the first stone. You hear Paul writing in the New Testament and quoting the Old Testament, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And though there is justice, and we have a just and holy God that will judge all, his desire isn't wrath, it's not payback, it's not revenge, but according to Second Timothy, it's that he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So will justice come? Yes. In one form or another, in this life or eternity, justice will come. But it may not be the justice that you want. And by putting your anger and rage, your outrageous call for justice before God, it allows that rage and anger to disappear. And the justice that's served at the end of the day may be that person that you're angry at, that you want judged, coming to a saving knowledge of Christ through the power of the Spirit and being one of our brothers and sisters. Because when you put anger before God, rage before God, it's silenced. It's stripped away. It's brought down, and it's replaced with opportunity for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace, for empathy. This is one of the most important reasons to pray, folks. We may have an all-knowing, all-loving God that knows your needs, your deeds, your wants, your desires, but prayer changes us. And when we put our angry prayers, our angry emotions before God, it changes them and provides a real opportunity which is the final lesson before the day, that rage belongs before God, where it results in radical grace and love. So let me close by saying this, um, which I wish I had written, but obviously I did not. (laughs) A pastor in Detroit, uh, in one of his books, his name is Balf, writes this. Christians should read Psalm 137 as a reminder that rage belongs before God not in the reflectively managed and manicured form of a confession, but as a pre-reflective outburst from the depths of the soul. There is no mere cathartic discharge of pent-up aggression before the Almighty who ought to care. Much more significantly, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face-to-face with a God who loves and does justice hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice and love of God, however, hate recedes and the seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being large enough and strong enough and tough enough and loving enough to handle the deep emotions that we feel as individuals. The cries of pain, the calls for justice, the cries of anger. I just ask that you give us the wisdom and the ability to always place these before you, to reach out in prayer. And I ask that you, almighty God, help us to silence these emotions, to change them, to transform them to something that is useful, that is worthwhile, that is wonderful and beautiful and leads to grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. In your name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.